Well, good morning. Uh, so this morning's lesson um, is going to be a little bit different. Um, usually I don't preach on uh, current events or things on the news. Um, the, the closest thing has probably been preaching on how to handle things with the coronavirus uh, just recently. Um, and this lesson on living in tribulation um, is really based in things that have been going on around the nation uh, that have been centered on Minneapolis and some of the things that recently happened there. Um, those events are a little bit different than most uh, current events or things that just generally happen. Uh, a lot of the brethren who I love uh, very dearly um, are in Minneapolis. So I've had a lot of conversations with uh, some brethren up there who have been in the middle of all of that. I've even gotten calls from uh, dear brethren in Birmingham where there have been riots in Birmingham that have been pretty violent, that have been nearby to where brethren I love are there also. Um, so it just it seems like with the coronavirus, the, the political unrest, the cultural unrest, it just seems very fitting that we talk about how much the gospel equips us to live in the center of tribulation and how God equips us to understand justice and righteousness in a way that helps us to remain set apart from the world while also living within the world as well. So again, the, the center of the lesson is, how are we equipped to live in the midst of so much tribulation as the world seemingly collapses all around us? Are we given the tools that we need to be able to live in a holy and quiet way, even while everything else around us collapses? I want to start in Luke chapter 21. Uh, Luke chapter 21, Jesus gives a sermon that is repeated in Matthew and Mark. Uh, in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus gives this same sermon, um, in Matt, in, and in Mark chapter 13 as well. Uh, and I just want to point out a couple things in the context. Um, generally, Luke 21, along with Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Matthew 24 is usually where someone will go in reference to this sermon. But it's a sermon that can very easily be misunderstood and the applications from the context can be wrong because of it being misunderstood. There's a lot of language in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 that sounds like the end of the world. Uh, and in a sense, it was the complete end of uh, something, but not the world. It was the complete end of the Jewish system and Jerusalem as it was with its temple. You'll see that in Luke 21 verses 5 and 6. Uh, some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. He said, as for the th these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. So the whole context of why Jesus is teaching this sermon that is throughout the chapter is because people were pointing out to Jesus all these beautiful things, these expensive things that were adorning the temple in Jerusalem. And his response is not that he's impressed at all, but he says that very soon every one of these stones are going to collapse. It's all going to be desolated. And you'll see in verse 20 through 24, specifically verse 20, Luke is more specific in the, the context of uh, this, this part of the sermon. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. And we'll, we'll stop there. But just to set the context, this is 
Jesus teaching about the conclusion of the time frame of the temple and the Jewish system as it could exist within the city of Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish practice of their religion. Um, A lot of times this sermon is looked at as Jesus is just telling his disciples to leave. But I think that's also a misunderstanding of the nature of this chapter. Jesus tells them when to leave, which is when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. It should be pretty obvious at that point it's time to go. But as much as he's telling them when to leave, leading up to that point, Jesus is equipping them to stay. He's equipping them to maintain faith and focus when the city of Jerusalem and its political system, its religious system, everything within Jerusalem is going to progressively collapse and he's equipping his disciples to remain in the city leading up to that moment. Because notice again in verse 21, he is presuming that there will be faithful people in the midst of the city when it's surrounded by armies. And leading up to that point, the city itself is going to completely collapse morally, it's going to collapse politically and religiously. So the sermon in bulk is not so much about just when to leave, but how to stay. In this chapter, I think there are principles that can equip any person in any culture to remain faithful to God, to remain focused on God, and to be rooted in Christ and the foundation of Christ in any culture. Because the city of Jerusalem was going to collapse in such a chaotic and wicked way that for Jesus to be able to equip people to stay in the city in that condition can equip us in any political system or cultural system as well. So I just want to point out a couple of things. In verse 26, one of the statements Jesus makes is that the chaos that's going to be coming on the city and just throughout the the cultures around it is going to be overwhelming. Earlier in the chapter in verses 7 through through 9, he talks about how there's going to be rampant false teaching. People are going to be making extraordinary claims about themselves, presuming that they are the Christ coming again. Verse 9, he talks about wars and disturbances, rumors of wars, tells them not to be terrified when they hear these things. Verse 10 and 11, there's going to be nations that are going to war against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes, famines, plagues. And he says there's even going to be great terrors and signs from heaven. Now I'm not even sure exactly what that would mean and look like, but the, the, the idea is that everything is going to be seeming to go wrong. Everything is going to be breaking. Every reason to be afraid is going to be pressing itself more and more uh, aggressively against the people. Verse 12 through 19, he uh, tells the disciples that hatred is going to be increasing and injustice is going to be increasing. Uh, Jesus' disciples are going to be the target of a great persecution where they're going to be, in verse 16 and 17, betrayed even by their family, betrayed by their friends, hated by all people because of Jesus' name, and yet he tells them by their endurance they will save their lives. So in verse 26, he says, Men are going to be fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. The idea is Jesus is not, he's not sugarcoating the situation. He's telling them in the plainest terms, this is going to be a very bad situation. And you are probably going to suffer the worst of it. And people are going to be so overwhelmed, they're not going to be able to handle the chaos that's going to be coming on the city and the culture here. But in verse 28, notice he equips them and urges them to double down on their foundation. We'll get back to Matthew 24 in a second, but I want to finish the context in Luke here. 
In verse 28, he says, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The idea is Jesus is using an illustration of somebody who's so distracted by what's immediately in front of them that they're not even focused on what's more ahead and the direction they're to be going. So he tells them, don't focus so much on the chaos that's right in front of you and around you. Lift up your head and put your hope back in God and his power and his promises. In verse 34, he says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. And here he's referring to the day when Rome would come and enact God's vengeance on the city. For it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of the earth. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So in verse 34, again, the idea is he's encouraging them, you need to double down on your foundation. When I say double down, what I mean is put as much emphasis, re-emphasize to yourself the importance of what your faith is really built on. That you're going to need to be more focused, more vigilant, because if you're not really rooted on the foundation of Christ and in following him, you're just going to get swept away into the anxiety of the culture, the worries of the culture, the anger of the culture, the chaos of the culture. And so Jesus is telling them people are going to fall away, people are going to be deceived, people are going to be frightened, people are going to be filled with worries and anxieties. But in verse 36 he says, but be on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. Just want you to think for a second. Jerusalem is the city that had the most reason to respond to Jesus and his teaching. Jerusalem is the city where Jesus is crucified. And yet, this city did not have its political system solved by Jesus' presence in it. This city did not have its political system solved by his teaching. The religious leadership and the temple system was not solved by Jesus' presence in the city. It was broken beyond repair, and Jesus' solution was not fix the city that's broken, fix the system that's breaking. His exhortation was, you be faithful to God. And you put all of your trust in God's kingdom while this kingdom on earth collapses beyond any repair. And he didn't tell his disciples that they need to be involved in fixing the system because the exhortation to them is that it's just not possible. So how can we be equipped then to seek solutions to the world's, uh, the problems that we see in the world, the injustices we see in the world, the chaos we see in the world, even politically. What, what can we do and what's God's solution? So back to Matthew 24, verse 12. It's, it's in the same sermon. Jesus says something there that is very key. He says, Because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. So one solution that is the wrong solution. Because lawlessness is increased, many people withdraw from others for their own self-made security. Because you see the way that people are, and it's disgusting. People are unpredictable. People are violent. People are unstable. People are riotous. People are are violent toward each other. And so the solution in a worldly way is, well, we need to be less involved with each other. If I'm to be safe in the world, I need to protect myself. I need to be more isolated from others. That is not the solution that the gospel offers. And that is not the solution the gospel calls us to. So what is the solution? I want to look at some prophecies in Isaiah that speak about Jesus and how he would bring forth justice. Uh, Isaiah chapter 59, where we had our scripture reading, I want to start there. 
and just make some points of application from this. So we read, we read all of this in the scripture reading, so I'll just kind of reference these verses that we want to look at specifically. But in verse 14 and 15, this is Isaiah speaking here and kind of reflecting on his mentality about the culture where he is. And you notice how disturbed he is by the injustice in his culture. And again, Isaiah is dealing with Judea and Jerusalem. And in verse 14, he says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the streets and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah was frustrated with the injustice of his culture. Isaiah was disturbed by that injustice. He was indignant. Isaiah was looking for solutions and he couldn't find them in his culture. And this is the key to God's amazing response. The the image of this is so incredible and vivid. The Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And then God, when he saw that there was no man who could bring it or solve the problems of the culture that belonged to his people, his own arm in verse 16 brought salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And according to their deeds, so he will repay. God understands the frustrations of injustice. You don't just get the impression that Isaiah is frustrated with the situation and God doesn't empathize or relate. Isaiah feels the weight of injustice. Living in cultures in the world that collapse, cultures in the world that are not God's culture, they are not God's kingdom, there will be times where we will feel the weight and the heaviness of injustice in our culture. We will feel the weight of the fact that the world is looking for solutions and they can't find them. And the problems just seem to get worse and worse until we end up in the same place. Justice is turned back and we can't find it. Truth is completely lacking. Something I think we need to understand about this is justice is more important to God than it is to us. Justice is more important to God than any political leader any protester, nobody cares more about justice and solving injustice more than God. Not only that, but God has the power to bring justice that men don't even have. And oftentimes trying to solve something that I don't even have the problem to solve is what oftentimes leads to violent frustration because I'm looking for a solution. I want it so badly. I see how things should be, but it just doesn't seem like it's a problem that people are capable of solving. But God is capable of solving the problem. So not only does injustice disturb God more than it disturbs us, God is able to solve the problems of injustice. And the hope of God's justice, this is a key thing in this chapter, the hope of his justice actually becomes more incredible and appealing the more obvious it is that there is no hope for justice from men. Isaiah was in a condition where he saw that there was no longer any hope for justice in his culture. There was no political system. There was no power. There was no king in Israel who could bring the justice that he knew God was seeking. Only God could bring this justice. And in chapter 60, this is good news. This is good news that Isaiah rejoices in. I I think in a sense, this is Isaiah speaking. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And he talks about darkness covering the world, but God's light shining radiantly in the midst of that darkness. So 
God cares about justice. God can relate to how disturbed we are about injustice. God can empathize, and we can empathize with God when we see injustice and we're bothered by it. But look at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Um, And the point of this is that just as God said he came himself to bring justice and salvation, it's, it's a clear reference to Jesus, but in chapter 42, it says explicitly, and this is the quotation for this point, Jesus was sent on a mission, and that mission was to bring justice to the earth. Jesus' mission was to perfect justice and to reveal the righteousness and justice of God. So look at Isaiah chapter 42, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out nor, or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So notice verse 1. He will bring forth justice. Verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. But there's an irony in this passage. How could justice come the way that it's described in verses 2 and 3? That Jesus wouldn't raise his voice in the street. He wouldn't cry out. Verse 3, he would be so gentle that it's like a bruised reed, this grassy type of leaf that grows in water that's broken down and about to break and fall. He would handle it and, and heal it without breaking it. And a dimly burning wick, you imagine a little candle with a flame that's just about completely out. There's just a little simmering glimpse of fire that's left. How easily it's blown out by your breath. And Jesus, the image is that he would cultivate it again. He would work with it to reignite it again without extinguishing it. How could justice come with such gentleness, quietness, peaceableness? And I think this is very important to understand. The quietness of the cross was the loudest, most effective, and most powerful protest against injustice that anyone had ever seen in the world. Jesus' suffering abuse quietly was the loudest cry against all of the injustices abusing him. All of the powers that were abusing his innocence, that were trying to get him to break and get angry and grow loud and collapse, Jesus' endurance of peace was the most effective and most powerful protest against injustice. God's justice is not the world's justice. And when we see Jesus, what we see is God's response to injustice leads us to an opposite place that the world's solutions would take us to. And in Matthew 12, this is where this quotation is quoted in the gospel, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 12, uh, he quotes Isaiah 42. And I just want to look at the verses right before the quotation that lead into it. And the point is just that Jesus' love never grew cold. You know, again, Jesus, you imagine, he was more aware of prejudices in his culture than anybody else. And who could God expect to be less prejudiced and completely impartial? Who could God expect that from any more than his own people? 
So you imagine how disturbed Jesus was by the rampant prejudices that existed within his own culture. Imagine how disturbed Jesus was at the injustices that existed politically in his culture. You imagine how much he could empathize with people who were treated unfairly. You imagine how much he cared about the afflicted and the people who had nobody to plead for them, the overlooked, the forgotten, and the outcasted. But Jesus' love never grew cold. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell anyone who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken to Isaiah the prophet, and it then gives the quotation. Jesus focused as much as he could on healing individuals, empathizing with people on an individual basis, loving people aggressively. You imagine as Jesus was so disturbed by the evils and injustices of his society, you imagine his perspective then in love, knowing that he was the one who had the solution. Jesus had the solution, he alone. And that if it were not for him, there was no solution, there was no resolution. And so instead of withdrawing as he see the disgusting nature of the wickedness of his culture and experiencing that, and how the Pharisees, for no cause, wanted to conspire to destroy him, he kept his focus. He stayed on the alert. He kept his head straight. And he continued persistently seeking to bring justice by God's methods. Revelation chapter 14 talks about those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I want to finish the lesson looking at some points from Titus chapter 3. We're called to be a kind of people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I think in Titus chapter 3, we're given applications that are an imitation of God's justice. Ironically, you'd think justice, since Jesus brought it and fulfilled it in his ministry, you'd think the word justice would be found in the New Testament everywhere. The irony is that justice is actually a word that's used predominantly in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament it's used like once or twice, and that's all. Because justice is seen in its application. Justice is described in the life that's lived by the principles of justice. So Titus chapter 3, you'll see that although the word justice is not used, these are the same principles of justice we've seen in Jesus from the previous point the things that the disciples would busy themselves doing in Jerusalem as the city would collapse and grow more corrupt. Just remember really briefly though, in Titus chapter 1 verse 12, Crete was a disaster. Uh, You remember the Apostle Paul would say that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Crete was not this pristine, good moral place for, for Titus to be living and teaching. This was a very wicked, collapsing culture. And in chapter 3, we get solutions for justice that reflect the justice of Christ that was prophesied in Isaiah. Let's read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll reflect on verses 3 through 7 at the first. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, 
he saved us. Not in the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Just very quickly, verses 1 and 2. You could read that in our culture now, with the things that happened with uh, injustices in Minneapolis. And you could read this and think, but God, if I do this, nothing is going to change. That's not going to solve anything. It's not going to fix the problem. But look at verses 3 through 7. Did God fix the problem? So the point you'll see on the board is remembering God's justice toward us individually. It really puts everything in perspective. What problem is God really trying to solve? Is God really ultimately trying to make the kingdoms of the world and their political systems perfectly reflect the justice of the kingdom of heaven? Or is it that God is trying to rescue us out of the hopeless injustices of the world and to bring us into his righteous judgment in his kingdom? Remembering how we've received justice from God individually motivates us. It is the primary motivation that teaches us to exercise that same justice towards others individually as well. Just like chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. The grace of God teaches us to reflect that same justice, to have those same motivations and to have passion for God's will in directing the indignation we have against wickedness, seeking solutions that God has exemplified and modeled himself. God is the one who has the solutions to the world's problems. So in verses 1 and 2, these are living qualities of God's justice. The word is not there explicitly, but it's described beautifully. Being subject to rulers and authorities. Jesus, even as he died on the cross, Pilate would tell him, do you not know that I have the power to release you? And he said, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from heaven. Therefore, the one who's given me to you has the greater sin. Jesus was obedient, ready for every good deed. Jesus, when he was maligned, did not malign in return. Jesus, when there was chaos and unrest around him, was a man of peace. Jesus, when people were hostile against him, was gentle. Jesus, when people were giving him no consideration, were giving them consideration in return. The justice of God is not that I only honor people so much as they honor me, or I give justice so much as I'm given justice. The justice of God is that I see his image in others even when it's not visible. The justice of God is that I see Christ and his love in others even when by appearance there's no reason to see such things. In verse 3, I remember that I myself was unjust, deceived and enslaved and maligning, but God showed me mercy. So finally, the last application I want to make is verse 2, and I want to spend the last bit of time on that. We need to strive to show every consideration to all men. We need to be willing to grow, learn, and be corrected in understanding how do we do this. I think one of the most beneficial things for me in having conversations and listening and, and reading different thoughts about the circumstances we're in and how to respond in a godly way 
is just the opportunity to grow in such a critical subject and to grow critically in understanding how to empathize and show love and how important that empathy is. We need to be a people who have a practice of every circumstance we're in giving consideration to the people who are around us and being able to do that for all men of all diversities. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, there, there's a, almost like a tension here because we need to identify as much as possible with the kingdom, right? We need to identify as much as possible with Christ. And, you know, when churches were addressed, they were the church of God who was in Colossae or Corinth. They, they were not to identify themselves with their culture. But the reality is, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 9, that our cultures and our backgrounds are still a reality of who we are. And so the, in the kingdom of God, it's not that we just ignore the cultures that we're in. It's not that we just ignore the backgrounds that diversify us. But it is that we encourage each other, we work with each other, we love one another, and we show empathy toward each other to try to build our faith, to unify ourselves in Christ more and more in the face of these realities and the struggles involved in those realities. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9-23. through 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I, might, I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. You know where Paul learned this? To Jesus who had no one, or with Jesus, to those who could find no one to empathize with them, Jesus could empathize with them. People who were hurting with no one to care, they found Jesus to be a man who cared. People like Zacchaeus, people that society wanted nothing to do with, Jesus wanted to be with Zacchaeus. Jesus' love never grew cold. And you imagine as Paul is going into these different cultures, how many difficult things he's being confronted with and having conversations with different people in different circumstances. How many different kinds of injustices existed in all of these different places and prejudices that existed in all these different places. How many people, as Paul would spend time with them, would vent to him about how they've been mistreated and abused and outcasted in their society. But as those people may have not found any ability to have any kind of voice or audience, with Paul they had a voice. Paul could empathize with people who otherwise would find no empathy. So again, although the gospel calls us to identify to the kingdom, to help others to identify with the kingdom, we still live in a reality where the cultures of the world and the backgrounds that people have within the cultures are still a reality that we want to show as much empathy and compassion towards as possible. And finally, one of the things that I've been considering um, that I think is the most important is people want what God is offering. People want to be heard. People want justice. They want broken things fixed. They want a, a system where they're able to find relief and care and justice. And the reality is that's exactly what God is offering. That is why the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news because the gospel offers what the world can never offer. What the world tries to offer but fails devastatingly 
to actually truly provide. God is offering justice to the afflicted. He is offering hope to the hopeless. He's offering comfort to the downcast and downtrodden. And he is offering exaltation to the lowly. And so I hope that these thoughts could be helpful. I, I'm sure that there's, there's, there's things that I need to rethink and maybe some of these thoughts you have found um, to not be very helpful or not productive in the face of these circumstances. Um, but I, I want to learn, and I know we all want to learn, and we just need to have hard conversations. We need to be willing to think about difficult things and always be willing to learn and to grow so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves, as God calls us to. If there's anything that needs to be brought forward to the church at this time, uh, if there's any um, response that needs to be made to the call of the gospel, if, if you're convicted that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins and repent of your life apart from God, although circumstances are strange, we have water here, and we would still be fully willing to immerse you for the remission of your sins so that you can know the justice of God yourself. Please bring anything forward while we stand and sing. Invitation song.